Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, it's officially our one year anniversary since starting the podcast. I sincerely want to thank all of you for listening. We couldn't have kept this thing going without your support, and I'm so thankful that I get to do this every week for you guys. If you ever want to email us about your thoughts on the podcast, you can send it to onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. You may even get a shout-out in one of the following episodes if you do. In honor of this milestone, we're doing an episode on a species of whale because our first episode was on killer whales. I think you're really going to like it. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This week, we're talking about an ocean animal that has some extremely unique adaptations. A lot of people love these animals, partly because it always looks like they've got a smile on their face, but unfortunately, their populations aren't doing really well. Lucky for us, I got the chance to talk with Suzanne Steiner, the founder of the Beluga Whale Alliance, who knows all about them and their conservation. So make sure you bundle up, because we're heading to freezing cold waters to talk about beluga whales. can be found in Arctic waters and also in some subarctic waters like in Alaska. So these guys love the cold. They're also enormous, weighing in at one and a half tons and getting to be around 14 feet long. Their closest relatives are thought to be narwhals, who also love colder waters. And unfortunately, they're listed as near threatened by the IUCN. This means that their populations are really struggling. There are so many interesting things about belugas that I can't wait for you to hear about. So let's get into the interview with Suzanne Steiner. Suzanne told me a little bit about her life and how she became interested in beluga whales. Hi, Suzanne. How are you doing? I'm great, Alex. Thanks so much. Our local beluga whale population has just started to show back up here uh, along the shores of Alaska's Cook Inlet, and we've had, let's see, about 12 days straight of beluga activity and sightings here in our backyard waters. Wow, that's so awesome, and I can't wait to hear all about that. <laughs> Thanks, I can't wait to share uh, to share more about belugas with you. Awesome, and, and first, before we get into beluga talk, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in beluga whales? Sure. Um, I, now I'm kind of locally known. I like to refer to myself as Beluga Sues, <laughs> and it's really become a, a facet of my identity here locally where we're based. But um, but yeah, when I, I grew up in Kentucky, uh, far from the sh- 
far from Arctic waters um, in the Midwestern United States. But my mom, actually, my first exposure to beluga whales was like my mom singing the the Raffi's song, Baby Beluga, to me as a little kid, as a lullaby. <laughs> and I was just always... And enthralled by like zoo books and National Geographic. I would read every, you know, Nat Geo magazine I could get my hands on, loved going to the zoos and have just always loved wildlife. Um, and so I moved up here to Alaska a number of years ago and, and worked as like a nature guide um, and at wilderness lodges and just became um, more, you know, appreciative of Alaska as a wild space with all of these, um, you know, all of this, these charismatic megafauna still here. <laughs> um, and I, the first time I saw wild beluga whales was was actually interning at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center um, and saw them swimming around in the waters here outside of Anchorage. Didn't even know there were beluga whales this far south. Didn't even know what I was looking at. I was like, are those dolphins? Wait a second. <laughs> but they don't have fins, dorsal fins. And then I learned that this uh, population is endangered. In fact, one of the most endangered beluga whale populations in the world. So I went back to school for my master's degree in conservation biology and decided I wanted to, to save beluga whales. <laughs> well, that's so awesome. And I can't imagine how exhilarating it must be to actually see them in the wild. It is. Um, we call it beluga vibes, that feeling that you get when you see, and it never gets old when you see a beluga <laughs> pop up in the water. Um, our water here in Cook Inlet is like kind of really, it's really muddy with glacial silt. So it's like actually really gray. Um, and so the whales, their, their bright white coloration really stands out. But, um, you know, I'm sure you've said you've, you love whales, um, you know, people who go whale watching, that's what you're, that's what you're seeking, right? When you get on a whale watching boat, you're like, you want that like thrill that of that awe just, you know, in their presence to fill you. And that's, that's what happens when we see a pod of our critically endangered belugas appear and swim by us on the rising tide this time of year. Suzanne is also the founder and president of the Beluga Whale Alliance. I'll let her tell you a little bit about their mission. So I started the this nonprofit 501c3 nonprofit organization out of graduate school as part of my um, master's work in conservation biology and living in this area um, in along the shores of Cook Inlet along critical beluga habitat. Um, I am part of a community of folks here uh, and locals and talking to my fellow community members, I learned and realized that so many people um, love seeing the, the Cook Inlet belugas that are one of the most highly visible beluga populations in the world as well, in addition to being very endangered, living here um, and swimming around in the waters outside of Alaska's largest city of Anchorage. Um, so a lot of folks love seeing them on a seasonal basis uh, when they are in these nearshore areas chasing um, anadromous runs of fish like ulicon and salmon. They're chasing the salmon right now, um, but they they might not know a lot about their activity patterns. Um, like they are active in the water every day <laughs> near shore, um, or a lot about their conservation status. Um, so that's really what inspired me to start 
this organization uh, and also realizing that there was a gap too between like managers, researchers, and scientists and members of the public and everyday people um, communicating science, doing science, involving people um, in, you know, directly in recovery efforts to save this population. So um, our mission here is really to inspire and uh, inspire people to support beluga conservation by connecting people to the whales here. Um, and also because of how highly visible this population is, we really hope that people can connect to belugas as a species by uh, more people seeing them. And this is so important because as you probably know, I believe education can really improve the conservation of all animals. So with that being said, let's learn more about belugas. We know that they live in extremely cold and icy waters. So how do they stay warm and navigate through the ice? Suzanne has our answer. So like I mentioned, they don't have a dorsal fin uh, like a lot of whales, like killer whales do. Um, They do have a sturdy dorsal ridge, um, but no actual dorsal fin. And that helps them navigate through ice flows more easily. um, Also to evade predators like killer whales and polar bears um, in other areas uh, of their habitat. Um, Also, like they would lose heat. if they had, they would lose excess heat too, if they had a dorsal fin. Another great adaptation is their blubber. So um, a lot of times we joke the belugas, they kind of look like big marshmallows (laughs) floating around, swimming around or Michelin men, you know, in the water. Um, And because they have so much blubber, it can usually, I think the typical thickness is about four inches, but um, they can be found with, you know, upwards of maybe even 10 inches of blubber. Um, And so that blubber helps uh, them store energy and also helps them keep warm (laughs) when they're swimming around in the frigid waters. So we actually hear where we are um, is uh, this population of belugas is actually a subarctic population. So not quite Arctic, um, but the water here is still very cold (laughs) and uh, definitely gets uh, large ice flows in it in the wintertime. Wow, that's really cool. So they have some like built-in winter coat pretty much. (laughs) Exactly. They're also, um, you know, one of the most distinct characteristics uh, of belugas is that they're white. That's actually their name. Uh, Beluga is from the Russian word uh, meaning white or white one. Um, And that's an adaptation as well, camouflage um, for swimming amidst the sea ice. It's really surprising that these huge creatures can also take advantage of camouflage in the ocean. And baby beluga whales are different colors than the adults. When they're actually little, they're actually gray. Um, And that's also for camouflage as well, too. Like I mentioned, our waters here in Cook Inlet are really silty and really gray. So the, the calves really blend in extremely well. Besides their color, another defining characteristic about them is their huge foreheads. What's up with that? We'll find out right after the break. The person that I want to recognize on this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Dr. Fred Begay, who was a nuclear physicist. Because he was a part of the indigenous Navajo Nation, he found ways to connect his scientific work to the beliefs of the Navajo people. He was not allowed to take physics in high school and was taught how to farm instead. But after he fought in the Korean War, he got into the University of New Mexico. 
Because he had no science background, he was taking college courses and high school courses at the same time. He earned his PhD in physics and started working for the Los Alamos National Laboratory, where he worked on how to use nuclear reactions in order to generate clean energy. He worked his way from having no background in science to being one of the top scientists of his field. If you want to learn more about Dr. Begay or this series, check out onwildlife.org. Okay, we're back. So why do beluga whales have these large foreheads? So that actually um, is, <laughs> they're, it's not a brain in there, although their brains are large. And I think we'll talk about that um, in a, a few minutes too. But um, their foreheads are so large because they have what's called a melon um, there. And uh, beluga whales, like dolphins and killer whales, echolocate to navigate and find their prey, especially here in the muddy, muddy waters, silty glacial waters of Cook Inlet. The movie Finding Dory, Bailey the Beluga is the <laughs> character in that film. And uh, he says he has the world's best pair of seeing eyeglasses with his echolocation. So that's how they're able to find their way through the um, narrow channels here in this uh, glacial, glacial watershed estuary, also to find their prey, to zero in on salmon, like bats will zero in on a mosquito. And their melon is basically a big mass of fatty tissue that they can manipulate, that they can move and help them actually direct those echolocation signals and pulses. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> This is really beneficial for them because, as you can imagine, it must be pretty hard to see under the ocean in some murky waters. There's really cool videos on YouTube you can look up of <laughs> um, belugas in uh, human care situations actually moving or wiggling and jiggling their melons. Um, and it's really, it's really wild to see. Um, also, I think males will do it too to attract females, <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> But can they communicate through echolocation too? So, yeah, they use the echolocation um, primarily to navigate and locate prey, but they're also called the canaries of the sea because they make so many different vocalizations, dozens of different um, calls, chirps, clicks, whistles. They can bark, they can moo, <laughs> they can honk. Um, and so that's that's the key way um, they communicate with each other. Uh, but it's kind of a misnomer, the term vocalization, because they don't have, beluga whales don't have vocal cords. So they actually um, make all of those sounds by manipulating and using their blowhole um, at the top of their head. Yeah, just behind their melon, um, which is pretty fascinating. <laughs> it's amazing that they basically have their own language. And I wanted to know if there's a way that we could tell what any of these vocalizations mean. Yeah, so there is a researcher named Valeria Vergara, um, and she has done a lot of research with belugas out of uh, northern Canada um, on exactly that. That's her like primary area of research, and I, I love, we love following her work and um, learning about her findings, but she's actually, one key aspect of her work has been identifying um, mother calf calls, contact calls. So she's learned actually through her research that um, 
that moms and babies have a certain way they will communicate with each other to know, um, to be able to stay in contact and stay nearby and close by. Um, And one of the key things, um, key threats, and I know I think we'll talk about threats here soon too, that belugas face is underwater noise. And that's exactly why underwater noise is such a, is really like the top threat um, to belugas, uh, not just here in Cook Inlet, but globally too. Um, and increasingly uh, as climate change uh, decreases sea ice, increases shipping traffic and human activity, that noise can mask um, that communication between two belugas, like a mother and a calf, um, and make it more difficult for them to hear each other, to stay together, um, and can even have potentially long-term um, negative impacts on their ability to survive and thrive. Noise pollution is a huge issue for whales that not a lot of people think about, but the Beluga Whale Alliance is working really hard to educate locals about this problem. And thinking back on this communication that happens between beluga whales, it makes you wonder how smart these animals are. They're incredibly intelligent. They may even be smarter than us. (laughs) I don't um, doubt it. I don't doubt it. (laughs) Belugas, yeah, their brains are actually almost twice the size of ours. I think I hinted to that earlier. And they have uh, their neocortex, like the, which I think is like the surface of their brain, surface area of their brain, has more folds in it. So I feel like you're picturing a normal human brain um, with like all those wrinkles and stuff, like a beluga's has a lot more wrinkles, which indicates potentially that they have like a greater, their brains have greater processing power than ours do. <laughs> so it's definitely, I think, from what I've learned thus far in my beluga career, like it's absolutely still like an emerging area of research. Um, and again, there's a, there's there's definitely specialist in this area, Dr. Lori Marina with the Whale Sanctuary Project. She's a, a neurobiologist. Um, and does a lot of uh, this kind of work looking into beluga intelligence. <laughs> but yeah, they're very, very smart. I'm sure also if you love belugas, you've probably seen a lot of viral videos out there um, of belugas and aquaria, um, you know, hanging out with uh, and being entertained by like mariachi bands playing <laughs> on the other side of the aquaria glass. Um or the viral, recent viral videos of Valdemir, um, the, Nor- the Russian, aka Russian spy beluga that showed up in the waters in Norway recently, um, fetching people's GoPros and iPhones that they dropped in the water and bringing them back to them. So, wow. uh, <laughs> yeah. And lastly, on this note too, of like communication and being social animals, um, there's a there was a beluga that was part of uh, the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program uh, many years ago, named uh, I think its name was pronounced No Sea, um, spelled N O C or Knock, um, and that beluga actually started mimicking human speech, uh, and doing so, one of his trainers mentioned that she felt he was t- truly doing that to try to make a connection with them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's almost something that you would hear about in like a science fiction movie or something like that. It's crazy. 
<laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of joke a lot that belugas are almost like like these alien, this alien species, like sea spe- <laughs> you know, marine mammals swimming around in the waters. But isn't it incredible that they're not? And they actually are so magical seeming, but they are real creatures that we we have here on planet Earth uh, and that we can protect. And what differentiates them from other (laughs) whales? Anomalous things that belugas can do. Uh, uh, They are the only whales that can move their necks around. So they can move their necks like in a circle um, because their neck vertebrae aren't fused, Um, (laughs) which is (laughs) is pretty crazy. Um, They're the only whales that are all white in color also. They also are the only whales they can swim backwards. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, that helps them definitely, I'm sure, with these, the population we have in here in Cook Inlet, we have really dramatic tidal fluctuations, up, upwards of 30 plus foot tidal exchanges every tide cycle. And they have really narrow channels that they swim in chasing salmon. So I'm sure that comes in handy um, as the water's pushing them around and they have to navigate these tight, tight glacial estuary channels. But of course, beluga whales aren't just cool because they have all these amazing adaptations. They're also really important to the ecosystems that they live in. They are near the top of the food chain um, here in the Arctic um, and here in an environment like Cook Inlet. Um, So they're you know, that predatory status makes them what's called often in conservation an indicator species. So um, if you think of like the food chain, you have like plankton and phytoplankton, and then you have um, fish, you know, that eat um, <laughs> different organisms that feed on the plankton and the plankton. And then um, and then belugas eat the fish. And so um, if, you know, there's any disruption in that food chain, um, in that ecological system, um, you know, a decline in beluga health um, and in a beluga population might indicate that, might might paint that a picture of that happening. Um, so uh, definitely, again, like I've mentioned talking, I've, I've talked to so many local people who live here along the shores of Cook Inlet, Alaska, that have lived here for decades and have said just you know, how, how sad it is. They used to see hundreds of belugas, you know, swimming around in the water. And now, um, they're, they're so much, there's so fewer of them. Um, and they're not as, you know, prevalent. Um, and so there's, that's a key research question right now is why is this population specifically continuing to decline and how can identifying and pinpointing that potential factor, um, or factors help us, learn how we can prevent this from happening with other beluga populations around the world. And what are some of the threats that belugas are facing? Here in our specific population, um, I mentioned belugas are called canaries of the sea. Uh, We like to refer to uh, the belugas here, Cook Inlet belugas in Alaska, as canaries in the coal mine, um, because they really face so many threats that uh, belugas around the world are going to unfortunately likely be facing uh, in the future, in the 30, 50 years plus years this century to come. As climate change decreases sea ice and increases human activities in the Arctic, like like shipping um, and vessel traffic or um, oil and gas exploration. 
and production. And so we have a lot of um, both of those things here in Cook Inlet, Alaska. Um, so underwater noise, like I mentioned, is one of the, t- the key top ones. There's actually uh, 10 threats all together, um, including pollution, habitat degradation, mass strandings, um, reduction in prey quality and availability, Um, that are all working together, likely in a synergistic fashion to prevent this population from recovering. Wow. So they're facing a whole lot of issues. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, they Yes, and they they are facing a lot. It can we call them the belugas on the brink. It can be a very, you know, it's a it's a dismal scenario, but there still is hope. Um, and so that's part of what our organization, the ethos that we embrace, is belugas as like an icon of positivity. So they're the smiling whales. <laughs> um, they're also known as the smiling whales because <laughs> they you know have you know their their faces are kind of painted in this permanent smile. Um, And so also, you know, what I mentioned about like being able to see them and that feeling that you get actually seeing them when they do return every year um, seasonally near shore and we can get close to them and just stand, stand along the shoreline. We don't even have to get into boats. We can just stand along the shoreline and watch them as they swim past us. And that feeling that we get those beluga vibes (laughs) inspire (laughs) us and keep us going. Um, and yeah, there's also a federal, so, so this population is actually listed under the Endangered Species Act, um, and there is a federal recovery plan that has been published in 2016 that lists a whole host of actions um, that can be taken and should be taken to help keep this population from going extinct. So that's uh, that's really like our Bible, our Beluga Bible, we call it. Um, and we really like to tailor our work to, to make sure we're su- directly supporting those recovery actions. After hearing about how awesome Beluga whales are, it just makes me want to go out and help them. Suzanne explained what the average person can do. I mean, like you mentioned, education is huge. So educate yourself um, for sure. Like visit an accredited aquarium um, that, you know, takes good care of its belugas, supports research and conservation efforts with wild populations. um, And Aquaria are huge, um, huge ambassadors, accredited Aquaria, especially in the United States for uh, educating the public about belugas, people who might, yes, not have the ability to travel up here to Alaska or to the Arctic to see these whales in the wild. Um, they can see and learn about them in an aquarium, um, learn a lot of these things that we've talked about today. Uh, also, you can support organizations like ours that are doing grassroots boots on the ground work. <laughs> to support the um, conservation of specific beluga populations. There's lots of organizations around the world that are that are doing their part in different areas to um, support beluga conservation. Uh, so no matter where you live, you could try to find, you know, maybe try to find an organization near where you're based or in the country, <laughs> in the country where you live. And really, it's going to take a village, you know, to, it always takes a village to save a species. That's an important conservation quote that I love to. Um, so what we really try to encourage folks to do is, is really all of us to combine our strengths and our, you know, the positive work we're doing, all these different organizations. And instead of looking at our differences or our differences of opinion, you know, if you um, oppose belugas being kept in captivity or not, um, really think of think of the bigger picture. 
Um, you know, and think of what we really need to do as a species, as a human species, to help this species of belugas uh, survive and thrive. And so, and lastly, I would say to um, use your voice, speak up for belugas, be an advocate for them, and support policies that directly benefit them. Wow, there are so many things that I never knew about belugas. It was great to have Suzanne on the podcast. And I loved all of her insights on how the average person can help without being anywhere near these animals. One thing that she talked about was to support organizations that are helping out beluga whales right now. So you guys should definitely go check out the Beluga Whale Alliance. You can also take a look at the Defenders of Wildlife Alaska and the National Marine Fisheries Service. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of beluga whales. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another 